Market Journal, television for agricultural business decisions, is a presentation of the University of Nebraska-Lincoln's Institute of Agriculture and Natural Resources. Promotional support is provided by the Nebraska Farmer Magazine. Partial funding is provided by the Nebraska Soybean Board and the Nebraska Corn Board. I'm Alex Makovica, and thanks for joining us today on Market Journal. Bryce is on assignment this week. Coming up on today's program, we'll discuss corn production practices that promote soil health and cover crop termination. Heather Ramsey will be joining us for a look at the markets this week, and we'll learn what happens at the Wheat Marketing Center in Portland, Oregon. But first, if you're new to the grain marketing game, it can seem intimidating at times. At this year's Women in Ag event, Brittany Wondercheck, also known to her followers as the Farm Girl Next Door, led a workshop titled, Take the Intimidation Out of Grain Marketing. This interactive workshop was designed to break down the basics of grain marketing, including common grain marketing terms and opportunities to practice making grain marketing decisions for hypothetical farming operations. If you don't have an understanding of some of those basic concepts and fundamentals, it can just feel so overwhelming that you don't even know where to start. So my goal is to help people understand those foundational concepts in grain marketing, increase their confidence, and understand how to make less emotionally driven decisions and more objective decisions. So part of that is understanding your cost of production, creating a grain marketing plan, however basic that may be, and um, trying to stick to that rather than just trying to guess, do I think the markets are going up from here or down from here? Because if you try to make decisions that way, no one can guess the markets and that's not gonna be a successful plan. When starting out in gray marketing, terms like options, puts, and basis can all seem a bit foreign to the uninitiated. However, Brittany tells us once you get your head wrapped around these concepts, they don't seem too intimidating. For those who didn't get the opportunity to catch her workshop, you are in luck. Brittany offers online training courses for those who are interested in becoming more acquainted with grain marketing. Other ones, people talk about funds or the speculative position in the markets. Um, basis, even though it's a common term and concept, it still is misunderstood in a lot of cases. Or if you haven't taken a grain marketing course, you might not be comfortable with what basis is and how it's determined. So even though it's more common, it still feels like jargon if you're not familiar with grain marketing. My goal is I offer online courses. So I have Cash Grain Marketing 101 and Grain Marketing 201. And so those are really meant to start at the ground level and build their knowledge from there. So that's how I help people understand and wrap their heads around those concepts is really a step-by-step -step approach with some activities, some worksheets along the way so that people feel more comfortable um, if they're not trying to grab pieces of information from different articles um, and different resources that way. And beyond those marketing courses offered online, for those who are new to grain marketing, one recommendation Brittany has is to find an advisor you trust to help you learn the ropes until you're confident enough to make marketing decisions on your own. There's often things that our operations have been doing for years that maybe we could change up a bit and be more successful at. So I think it's helpful to work with an advisor, especially starting out, because they are there to be a resource. So if you want to learn, there that they should be there to help teach you, or you can find one that is better at teaching versus just telling you what they recommend and expecting you to understand it. So there's some shopping around that has to happen. I am not a grain marketing advisor or commodity broker. Um, I get asked that a lot, but there are some that I do recommend because I, I have vetted them and understand kind of their positioning, but you have to find someone that you trust ultimately. 
If you'd like to continue your grain marketing education, we mentioned earlier Brittany does offer marketing courses through her Farm Girl Next Door website. You can find a link to those courses along with this story on the Market Journal website. Moving on, earlier this year, the Market Journal team made the journey to Portland, Oregon with a group from the Nebraska Wheat Board. There, the group got a first-hand look at what goes on at the Wheat Marketing Center and how the work being done in the Pacific Northwest impacts our wheat producers here at home. Market Journal's Bill Dodd has more on this story. Located in Portland, Oregon, the Wheat Marketing Center is on the technical crossroads of the international wheat industry. The Wheat Marketing Center was created in 1988 through seven state commissions, including Nebraska. To put things in perspective, 50% of all U.S. wheat is exported to foreign markets. 60% of those exports will come through the ports of Portland. While the Wheat Marketing Center focuses on domestic and international wheat trade, this entity was created from a need to better articulate the value and quality of U.S. wheat to importers of U.S. wheat abroad. We primarily do research on wheat, wheat quality, and use quality with a focus on how wheat is used, whether it's a hamburger bun or an instant noodle. Um, the value of U.S. wheat really comes from the fact that we can match any class of wheat to any product. And so that's what we do here, is really helping customers understand how to maximize their use of U.S. wheat. But we also do a lot of education, both for customers abroad and also like what we're doing this week with growers to help them understand what the market is looking for and why the decisions they make in the field are so important. When you bite into a value-added product such as noodles, crackers, or cookies, there's a definitive texture and taste to those products. However, preferences in taste and texture can vary from one region of the world to another. When it comes to understanding what the global market is looking for in terms of quality, the Wheat Marketing Center is in direct contact with many consumers in various export markets, and a good deal of work goes into understanding and catering to those various preferences. And so we spend a lot of time working with those customers, sharing our knowledge of U.S. wheat and how to get the most out of it. It's certainly not the lowest priced option on the market, and we want them to understand that we are bringing value with that higher price. We also, in return, learn from them in understanding what their needs are, um, and it helps us better design um, these U.S. wheat blends that we put together to meet their needs, to meet the texture preferences, appearance preferences, flavor preferences. So we do a lot of work um, in those export markets just trying to make sure that the flow of information is there and that any time they have a need, we're here to provide assistance. As 50% of U.S. wheat is exported on an annual basis, the focus of the Wheat Marketing Center is to improve the understanding of how U.S. wheat can meet the ever-evolving demands of global consumers. While U.S. wheat isn't the most affordable on the global market, the Wheat Marketing Center will take quality over quantity any day of the week in order to give our importing customers the biggest bang for their buck. I'd say, you know, the, the most important thing that we try to communicate is U.S. wheat, our advantage is our quality and our value. We are the most dependable, most reliable, and most predictable source of high-quality wheat that anybody can buy in the world. Um, in order for us to maintain that position, we have to work all the time to continue to remind customers, to remind clients, and remind growers that quality really does matter. If we're going to compete on a price basis, there's a lot of cheap stuff out there we're not going to win. But nobody can beat us on quality and value. With state-of-the-art quality testing equipment, pilot-scale production lines, and outstanding technical expertise, the Wheat Marketing Center is able to provide educational opportunities to growers as well as add value to its state wheat commission partners, wheat industry stakeholders, 
millers, and food manufacturers worldwide. Reporting for Market Journal, I'm Bill Dodd. Thanks, Bill. Between state-of-the-art equipment and innovative research, the Wheat Marketing Center in Portland does seem pretty well equipped to meet the ever-evolving challenges facing the wheat industry. If you'd like to learn more about the Wheat Marketing Center and the work being done at this facility, you can find more information on their website, wmcinc.org. It's now time to turn our attention to the grain markets. Earlier this week, we were joined by Heather Ramsey with the ARC Group to go over the latest happenings in the markets. Here's our conversation. Well, there's a lot of focus right now, South America, Russia, uh, China, even influences here in the United States, we were talking. High level the last couple of weeks and even this week, <laughs> what have we seen in terms of the grain complexes? Yeah, the very high level piece of this is that we are getting some buying back from China in our corn, in our sorghum complex, so that's a positive. Um, we continue to see massive production deterioration out of South America, specifically Argentina. Um, the question is uh, more along the lines of how many acres are being abandoned now? It's not do we have crop losses. We, there definitely are crop losses. It's what is not even going to make it all the way through to harvest. That is the big question. You look at recently here in the last week, we had a lot of discussion around um, how long will the Russian uh, grain corridor get extended? A lot of debate right now on whether the agreement was another 60 days or 120 days. Um, but, you know, Russia kind of wants some things that not real sure if the other side of the equation is willing to support some changes um, to that export corridor and the requirements. So that is still up in the air on the table. Um, there has been an overall decline in uh, soybean complex, uh, specifically to soybean meal. That's been weighing on the soybean market. I think a lot of times we forget that that back-end complex is just as important to overall raw grain demand on soybeans. So that's kind of been weighing on things. And then in the last, uh, over the last weekend, obviously we have some developments in more of our macro side of the equation here in the U.S. where we have some failing of large U.S. banks. What does that mean? What's the government going to do for, for those banks? How is that affecting the U.S. dollar? Because we all know that U.S. dollar and grains become very tightly interwoven, especially when we start talking about exports, export demand. You know, where does everyone else's buying power, how, how strong does that become in the U.S.? So that's kind of the um, piece of the equation that we don't quite know yet how that's going to shake out. Um, but that is another um, not so supportive right now piece of information, depending on how long it hangs around, could be if it turns into demand down the road. So kind of some high level, high level tidbits right now for the market. I want to dive into that a little bit, the Silicon Valley Bank failing. That's going to be in a lot of people's minds recently. What yeah. do you expect to see? What should people be focusing on, if anything? What I will say is from a grain marketing standpoint, from a risk management standpoint, I think these are one of those headlines that's totally out of our control. There's nothing that I can do today to change that outcome. But what I can do is look at the farm and say, you know, are we well positioned? Um, for us, the answer is yes, because we've started to put in all of our, you know, disciplinary um, marketing tools that we use every year, year in and year out, to kind of get the farm structured in a spot that we are less risk, um, we're taking on less risk in the farm, I guess you'd say. So for me, I'm not necessarily looking at what's going on with this Silicon Valley Bank. I'm more so concerned about keeping the Fed's interest rate hikes kind of in mind from a back end side of the farm or maybe the front end, whichever you want to say, but from a financial impact to the farm, this interest rate hike and the trajectory we're on is still going to be more important to the business at the end of the day. 
So we're having a lot of conversations, getting clients asking us, well, what do you think about interest rates? Well, I can think what I wanna think. What the Fed is going to do ultimately will affect our bottom dollar more than anything we can try to outguess with this one situation. And so we're having more um, conversations prompting guys to really be evaluating, you know, where are your interest rates? How much are you borrowing? You know, have that com quality conversation with your banker because from a marketing standpoint, we need to continue to execute and stay disciplined through this seasonal price opportunity we have, you know, now through the end of June. Um, we need to be comfortable and feel comfortable continuing to take action in that risk management strategy. You talk a little bit about seasonality. Of course, one thing we always look at this time of year is mm -hmm. South America. Dive into that a little bit more. What are we seeing? Yeah, so the bulls really love that South American headline. Um, I think initially the whole market world kind of thought, oh, well, whatever the losses are in South America, in Argentina specifically, Brazil's going to outweigh that. It's not going to be a big deal. Um, there are two key problems with that that the bulls would like to see really take some action. One of those being that Argentina's corn crop is really important to global corn supply. Um, they're going to have a very significant loss. Um, the numbers I've seen look like somewhere in the neighborhood of 50% reduction in their crop size. That is huge mm -hmm. um, and devastating for that farm economy. Um, there's a concern then, you know, how much of that negatively impacts those farmers where then we do see some loss in their farm, either production size capabilities going forward or you know temporary setbacks in growth. So that's kind of problem number one. Problem number two is when you look at who supplies beans around the globe that you're actually going to sit on from a storage and a surplus management standpoint, right? So if someone wanted, say a large country, wanted to fill their soybean coffers, you know, and have good quality beans that then nine months to a year down the road, they could process later, they're typically buying those soybeans from Argentina or the US. So then it becomes a question of, well, if Argentina doesn't have those soybeans, where do we get them from? Do we have to have them? Because US soybeans are higher priced right now. So do we have to have them? Or can we get by just buying processed products for as long as we possibly can? So there's a big debate there on what that impact will be to the, both the US corn and soybean um, demand picture, as well as just from a global you know, sense of security, you know, where does all that surplus come from? So Argentina is a big one. I didn't touch on this earlier, but Ukraine corn also really big ticket item right now um, for trying to figure out how, how much legs is under this, this bull conversation when we're getting so much downward pressure from the outside macro and financial markets right now. Heather, as we sit here on Tuesday and have this conversation, what are some important things those producers should be focused on ultimately? You know, ultimately right now, I think the best question for a producer to ask themselves is, where am I sitting at from a downside risk standpoint, right, on this 23 crop? And do I feel comfortable sitting there? Can I sleep at night without any worries? Um, there are some that would answer that, yeah, totally. I've got things working, I've got floors on, I've got products pricing. And I'm sure there are others out there that are kind of thinking, I haven't done anything. <laughs> so that answering yes or no to that question, I think really gives you the idea of where you need to go and what you need to work on. You know, right now is year over year, still one of the best seasonal forward price windows we can look at. And so I really encourage everybody to kind of take advantage of this window, get some marketing tools in your pocket that you can work with, you know, whether it's looking at options or futures or averaging products, whatever it may be, look at those and get them set up to work 
for you, not against. You got to be very <laughs> cautious about what you're doing, but get them set up to make make yourself less susceptible to downside risk at this point in time because it does feel like that is um, a pretty large um, risk potential at this point in time. And thanks again to Heather for her time this week. Next week, we'll be joined by Mike Briggs of Briggs Feed Yard in Seward, Nebraska. So if you have any questions you'd like for us to ask Mike, be sure to send us an email or get in touch on social media. We'll be sure to pass those questions along. Well, trees are an important component to almost every farmstead or farm facility. Windbreaks and tree plantings protect the farm, but if you don't plant the right varieties in the right place, it can be a danger to property. There are tree species like oak and pine that are very sturdy and less prone to wind and ice damage. Then there are other species like hackberry, silver maple, and river birch that are more susceptible to dropping limbs under extreme weather events. Landowners can learn more about planting sturdier trees near farm buildings and, structure, and structures in the March issue of Nebraska Farmer. Well, it's time once again to get an update on the weather with Market Journal weather analyst Bill Boyer. Bill, we missed you last week. What did we miss? What can we be looking forward to in the week ahead? Well, Alex, the answer is not much. Pretty quiet week for the most part. Uh, the last 24 to 48 hours, we've had some rain and snow in the eastern portions of the state, central and eastern portions of the state, with a storm system that moved through. But it started to feel a little bit more like spring in many areas this last week. That's not going to be the case this week or even the next week. If you look at our 8 to 14 day outlook, a big amount of the country, the western uh, over half of the country, going to be feeling below normal temperatures over the next eight to 14 days and above normal precip across a large portion of the state, all except for portions of Texas here. Otherwise, a big part of the country is gonna be experiencing above normal precip and below normal temperatures. What's that mean? Well, probably some more rain and snow in store for us. But things are gonna calm down a bit here in our 30-day outlook. Warmer temperatures off to the east, cooler to the west, and uh, east of us, some wetter and drier areas off to the west and southwest of us as we go through the 30-day outlook, we're gonna be closer to normal. And we do need some more moisture out there. The latest drought monitor continues to have a large portion of southwest into western Nebraska under the extreme drought conditions, still exceptional drought conditions here in portions of east central Nebraska. Uh, if you notice the far southeastern tip there, now officially out of any of the drought conditions. Do we have some precip coming our way? Yes, this week, probably not gonna be a ton till we get late in the week. The weekend's gonna be pretty dry as we go today into tomorrow, and uh, the remnants of that system is pushed well off to the east of us. By late Monday night, especially Tuesday into Tuesday night, we start to see a storm system approach from the west. We'll have some scattered showers in eastern Nebraska, some snow showers in northwest Nebraska, rain through the day Wednesday and even into Thursday, some off and on shower chances. And then as we go Thursday into Friday, uh, we start to pull that system away from us. So again, it doesn't look like it's gonna be a big storm system for us, but the possibility, again, of seeing some accumulating uh, precip out there, uh, much needed again. Well, as we look at uh, temperatures here today, we're, we've got that cold air setting in. We're gonna start to moderate a little bit Sunday as we get to the first full day of spring on Monday milder temps still below normal but notice tuesday wednesday and into thursday we push some of those warmer temps up into the region and then by friday we send those back to the south a little and we're kind of holding out in the normal areas as far as precip goes 
Heavier precip looks to be east of us uh, and uh, west of us. We're in the middle of uh, this area here, a little bit of light precip coming. And the good news for most of the state is we don't see much in the way of snow. The only exception up in the Pine Ridge area and northwestern portions of the state where we could see some accumulating snows as well. Again, uh, in that transition period, getting ready to switch over to spring, hard to pin down all the forecasts. Make sure you check your local forecast for details. Alex? Thanks so much, Bill. Finally today, many producers who want to prevent soil erosion, improve nutrient cycling, sustain their soils, and protect the environment have been adopting the practice of planting cover crops. At this year's Fremont Corn Expo, Extension Educator Katja Cooler-Cole was on hand to discuss corn production practices for soil health. This week, Bryce Duskett was joined in studio by Katja to discuss those practices and more. Let's talk a little bit about the Nebraska about Nebraska cover crops. What can you share with us about the number of acres uh, that are put into cover crops each year? Yeah, so Nebraska sees a steady increase in the number of acres that are planted each year to cover crops. So I think right now we're we're at about four percent of the cropland that's planted to cover crops. Um, so a lot of that is probably seed corn acres, um, followed by some soybean and corn acres, of course, 4% is still a relatively low number. Um, hopefully we're, we're able to increase that a little bit more with our work in the next few years. It's an interesting stat sharing that 4% of acres are put into cover crops each year. What are some of the most popular varieties of cover crops that are being planted here in Nebraska? It's definitely cereal rye, um, and a lot of farmers are also planting some mixes that almost always include cereal rye as well. So cereal rye, uh, the reason that is probably almost popular cover crop is so well adapted to our cold cold and dry winters. Um, it's relatively easy to establish and it's relatively easy to kill. So it's a good it's a good cover crop for us. It produces the most biomass of the small grain cover crops that we can plant. Um, other potential cover crops, uh, again, you know, that are mostly going to be in a mix are some brassicas, um, some legumes such as hairy vetch. Those typically tend to need a little bit longer growing time. So they'd have to be established a little bit earlier in the season. Ideally, we also let them grow a little bit longer just for them to produce enough biomass. Sure. What are some of the key benefits that corn and soybean producers in particular are seeing the benefits of if they are, are planting uh, into a cover crop? If you're planting into a cover crop, if you have a cover crop there in the spring, first of all, you know, your soil is covered. Yeah. Um, so, so erosion is still our main uh, goal with a cover crop. Um, some other benefits, of course, you are um, stimulating the soil microbes. You're providing a food source for them, you're, which you know helps them increase the numbers, helps them reproduce. So, more active, more numerous soil microbes will tend to increase nutrient cycling in your soil, improve soil structure. So, you have typically. Typically, one of the first things producers see is better water infiltration, um, better soil aggregation, um, and then over time, you, you can increase your soil organic matter. As we talk today, it's early March, so if, if producers had a cover crop over winter, perhaps they're thinking about termination as we're gearing up for the upcoming planting season. When's the right time to terminate the cover crop, or I suppose, does that depend? Yeah, it does depend a little bit. So uh, most or, or well, I, I don't know the exact numbers right now, but um, we used to recommend waiting about terminating cover crop and then waiting about two weeks, which I think is still a good recommendation for for those folks that are just trying out a cover crop for the first time. 
you know, terminate your cover crop and then wait a couple of weeks or so before you plant your corn or soybeans. More and more producers, when they have done cover crops for a few years, tend to move toward planting green. So they will plant the corn or soybean into the standing cover crop and then terminate the cover crop a few days later or at the same time that they're planting. Hmm. Methods of termination, have to assume spraying is the most common across Nebraska? That is the most common, definitely. Uh, Cereal rye especially is, is easily killed with, with glyphosate, so that's what uh, most people are doing. Yeah. Well, as we uh, have this conversation, I'm interested to learn about some of the projects that uh, you and perhaps some of your colleagues across the state are working on uh, when it comes to UNL research into cover crops. Are there one or two you want to share with us today? Yeah, so we have uh, a couple of really interesting projects that are led by colleagues of mine. So one that comes to mind is the Highboy Inner Seeding Project um, that is uh, led by my colleague, Katie Petrarch. She's also with Extension. And um, this is a collaboration between several entities, among them the Nebraska Department of uh, Energy and, and the Environment, NDE, um, as well as the NRDs in the state, and then of course UNL. And so um, they were able to purchase one of the high boy inner seeders uh, with a really wide, I believe it's about a hundred foot boom. And so um, this is a demonstration project mostly where, where uh, um, we collaborate with farmers that, and um, plant a cover crop in their fields, you know, in, in certain fields. So with this project, we're planting the cover crop in late August to about early October. Um, either a cereal rye or a mixed cover crop, and then it will be terminated in the spring. And so farmers are actually able to sign up for the project, I believe, so more information can be found on our website on that. Okay, well, we appreciate you coming in today. Is there anything else you wanna share with our audience? Um, if you plant a cover crop, or if you're, if you're hoping to plant one, you know, now's the time to kind of start planning about that, because one important thing that people tend to forget about is even if you're planting cover crop in the fall, you're making some decisions now. For example, your, your herbicide program, um, you gotta make sure that your herbicide program is compatible with the cover crop that you're planting in the fall. So cereal rye, if you're, if you're thinking about planting a cereal rye, um, there's a lot of herbicides that you can choose, but if you're thinking about planting a more, uh, a more diverse mix, especially those that include brassicas, you really have to make sure that the herbicides that you're applying um, this spring and summer are, are uh, not negatively impacting your cover crop that you will plant in the, in the fall. Thanks again to Katja for taking the time out of her schedule to join us on this week's program. If you'd like more insights from Katja on this or other subjects, we have included a link of several of her publications along with this story on the Market Journal website. That will do it for this week's show. If you missed a story, just be sure to follow along with Market Journal on YouTube and social media to catch up and join in on the conversation. We hope to see you right back here next time. Until then, I'm Alex Makovica, wishing you a safe and productive week. Thanks for joining. Join Market Journal online at marketjournal.unl.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Promotional support is provided by the Nebraska Farmer Magazine. Partial funding is provided by the Nebraska Soybean Board and the Nebraska Corn Board. Market Journal is produced by the University of Nebraska-Lincoln's Institute of Agriculture and Natural Resources.